And then our sermon passage this morning comes from Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, on, and dusty you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every, every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. God, we give you thanks for your word, which is living, which still breathes life into us, your people. I pray that you would use your word to breathe life into us. Help us to hope. Help us to trust that you are as good as you say that you are. Do this work in us by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. You know, as we this morning begin the Advent season, we're going to start, as I read, at the beginning of the story or near the beginning of the story in, in Genesis. And if you have never, you know, come from a tradition where you celebrate the church calendar, if it's new for you, I think one of the things that we often think is that it actually begins with the season of Christmas, but it actually doesn't. The church calendar, the church year actually begins in Advent. It begins with a season of Advent, which, you know, oftentimes when you think of this season of Advent, you think of remembering when Jesus came as a, a baby, and that's certainly part of what Advent's about, but more for us, it's we look back to his first coming to look forward to his second coming. And so it's just as, just as much for us about looking forward as it is about looking back. And so throughout the, the four Sundays of Advent this year, we're going we're gonna to be going through four different passages kind of throughout Scripture. This morning we're going to be in Genesis. Next week we're going to be in the prophet Jeremiah, and then we're going to take a little section in Luke and look at it the third week. And then the last week, we're going to be in Revelation 22. And, and through this kind of biblical survey through the theme of Advent, I think we're going to find that 
the story of Scripture is actually a story of Advent. And Advent is a word that means come, coming. And Scripture is a story of people longing for, waiting for God to come and rescue them. And learning, it's a people learning to trust and waiting, trust and hope in his second coming. And, you know, in this story begins in Genesis. You know, you probably all know this, but in Genesis 1 and 2, what do we find? We find creation, right? God created all things and he called them good. They were very good. And then he makes man and woman in his own image and sets them apart, right, to rule over creation, to, to care for it, to tend it, to guard it, to keep it, to protect it. And then in Genesis 3, in the verses you know, that come before the verses I read, what happens? Well, we find the great fall. Things take a turn. Shortly after they're created and placed in the garden to do this work, what do we find? We find man and woman falling into temptation, listening to the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of, of God. And this leads to the great fall of humanity, the great fall of all creation. And then this, it seems, you, know, you feel the weight of it after I read it, it seems like all hope is lost. They're cast out of the garden. Their relationships are broken. Creation itself is broken to its core. And even their worship with God is, is broken. And this is a brokenness that we still experience and feel today. Sin is still alive in this world. We still confess sin every week when we gather. People still get sick. They still die. People do unimaginable acts of, of evil. And they also do just the ordinary everyday acts, right? We, we tell that white lie. We, we cheat. We steal. We, and we, and we hide and we cover up. And the thing I really want us to see as we consider the beginning of the story here in Genesis 3 is just how desperate we are for the advent of Christ. We have no hope apart from his coming. We have no hope for, for healing, no hope for restoration, no hope for our marriages, for our families, for our relationships, no hope for new life apart from Christ coming. We need God to come. Because what we need, we can't accomplish ourselves. So as we consider our need for the advent of Christ, our need for Christ to come in Genesis 3, I think first we're going to see how the, in the fall everything was broken. Everything was shattered. And also I think we're going to see that even in the fall, there's hope. That even in the fall, there is a future hope. So first, we're going to see this, that the complete brokenness of the fall. First thing we learn about the fall is the complete brokenness of the fall. And we see how complete the brokenness of the fall was for us here in, in Genesis 3. Right? And there's, I think there's three ways that we see in the text that the fall utterly broke everything. And the first is this, that the, the fall broke our relationship with humanity. The fall broke our relationship with humanity. We see this first in Verse 16, it says, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. All right, from the beginning, the stage is set that our relationships with each other are going to be hard. From the start, we learn this truth, that there wasn't supposed to be pain in childbearing. Now, this may come as a shock to you, but I've actually never given birth. Um, although I have witnessed four of them, and even as someone who witnessed childbirth, to suggest childbearing 
without pain, it's hard to imagine. And you know, and even that word childbearing here has more than just the, the birth of a, a child in, in store. It has the whole raising of a child. And you know, often the harder thing is not the birth, but it's actually the raising of children that is very difficult and challenging. And to suggest childbirth without pain, child raising without pain, is hard to even comprehend for us because it's all we know. We've, we've, we've only known a world that has pain in it. So to imagine without is really hard, but in asking a couple of, of women about this, they commented that they both had actually come near to death in giving birth, which is interesting, right? Birth is meant to give life, right? It's meant to bring life into this world, right? It's an act as an image bearer of bringing about other image bearers. It's a profound thing, giving birth is. And now in the fall, this thing that's meant to bring life actually brings us close to death. As a result of our rebellion against God in the garden, our relationships with our own bodies is broken. They get sick. They die. Things that are life-giving actually are the things that bring about pain and sorrow and death in our lives. And it's not just there in, in our relationships with our own selves, but it's our relationships with each other is broken too. You know, you also see here the, that the power struggles that happen in our marriages, the conflict in your marriages are a result of, of the fall, right? The, the man is called to lead his family, you know, the, to be the head of his house, not in a domineering way, but as Paul writes to us in Ephesians, to, right, to love his wife like Christ loved the church by laying his life down for her. That's the model for, for marriage. Adam was meant to, to be a protector, to care for her. And his failure to do so in the, in the garden, his failure to stop the serpent from even speaking, that was his job to stop that. Brought strife to marriages. And now, you know, our unique God-imaging roles are filled with frustration, turned upside down. We've been inverted in every way. And now marriage, which also is meant to be this life-giving thing, right? Even Abraham, right, he's blessed to, to, to bless the families of the world, now marriage is hard work. This is a result of the fall. Our relationships with each other are broken. This extends to beyond just what we find in marriages. But you know, as soon as they get out of the garden in Genesis 4, when in the wilderness, what do we find? We find murder. We find envy. We find jealousy. We find strife. Our relationships with all humanity is broken. Not just kind of broken, but completely broken. What was meant to bring us harmony and peace is now a store, source of a strife and conflict for us. And there's no way out of this for us on our own. And now, you know, conflict is the marker of a relationship with each other. And actually, you know, one of the th only things I remember from my undergrad, I probably shouldn't tell this to people that are about to go to college or whatever, but the only thing I actually remember from my undergrad days is this conflict management class that I hated in the time because they made us do this role playing and I just really am not into that. But as I look back, it's the one class I remember, one of the things they, they taught was how conflict was a sign of relationship. That if you didn't have conflict with anybody, if you never had conflict, it actually meant you weren't really in relationship. How interesting is that? What the absence of conflict used to be the sign of harmony and relationship, but now, as a result of the fall, conflict is actually the sign that there is relationship with each other. Everything is backwards. Everything is completely 
broken. Death is now a marker of the living. The good news doesn't stop there, though. Right? The fall didn't just break our relationships with humanity, but it broke our relationship with creation itself. Our, our relationship with the rest of creation is broken. Look at verses 17 to 19. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ground, the, the thing that gives us sustenance to live, right? Our food comes from the ground. It's cursed because of the fall. Your work actively works against you. Have you ever wondered why work is so difficult? Why work is so challenging? Why work is so hard? Even if you have your dream job, it isn't easy. Even if you have the best structures and supports in place, even if you finally get to be the boss, your work will still actively work against you. It's a conflict for you, why? Because even your work is cursed. Right? Worms come and eat your crops. Bad weather comes and destroys them the day before harvest. Earthquakes and famines, flooding. All of it is a result of the fall. All the chemicals in the world still can't mitigate against the fall. They still can't make the rain fall. They still can't make the sun rise. Even if you don't work in agriculture, uh, these things apply to your work. Your work works against you. By the sweat of your brow, you are going to eat toil in pain, our work works against us because of the fall. Creation itself is broken. This whole thing is broken. Our planet is broken. You can drive all the electric cars in the world. You still will not save this planet by driving electric cars. It's not a political statement. It's just a true statement. Uh, you, this world is utterly broken. And now it's actively working against us. Our fall is complete. Our relationship with creation is broken. And there's a third and final way. This may be the, the harshest way, is this, that the, that the fall broke our relationship with God himself. Right, to round out our brokenness, our relationship with God is now broken. Verse 22 to 24, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You know, it's hard to put into words just how devastating this moment is for them. Uh, like land, right, where they lived. The, their blessing, legacy, you know, those three things that are the great promise to Abraham, right, are all taken from them. They're left with nothing, right? Man and woman were once naked and unashamed with God, walking a, among, God was walking among them by the power of his spirit. There was harmony, peace like you could only ever imagine, Right? And God planted this garden for them to tend. It was a temple garden filled with God's presence. He was there with them. 
And now what do we see? We see that harmony's broken and they're cast out. And he actually drives them out and he guards the entrance so they cannot come in and they're sent east. And in scripture, whenever it talks about someone going east, it's always away from God and his presence. Even in, in Ruth that we just went through, where do they flee in the beginning? East to Moab. East, away from God's presence. East, away from his blessing and his people. They have betrayed God. And in this great betrayal, their communion with him is broken. And they're sent into the wilderness. And it's devastating. And one swift act of justice, their relationship with each other is broken. With their own selves, with, with creation, with God, it's all devastated. Everything is now tainted with sin with rebellion. And this brokenness is what we, what we call in the theological world, you know, total depravity. And, and total depravity is one of those kind of bigger theological words that depending on how you've heard it, it can be a, a bad word because sometimes it can be often misused to boil humanity down to you're just a bunch of worms, which I don't think is, is actually true. Uh, but if I can summarize a, a, a definition for total depravity, it's simply the truth that we're talking about here in Genesis 3. That in the fall, the world became so broken that there's nothing that you can do to make it right. There's nothing you can do to fix this problem. We're in over our heads. As Romans says, we are dead and our sin. Total depravity says, you cannot save yourself. In and of yourself, there is nothing you can do to fix this because it is broken beyond comprehension. When I say our brokenness is complete, I'm saying our rebellion against God has completely cut us off from him and the beauty of his world. I think sometimes we struggle to believe that sin is really as hideous as it is. And in the fall, here, what do we find? Rebellion against God, sin against God is an abomination. There's no small rebellion against God. Sin is rebellion against him. So every white lie, every lustful thought, every disobedient act of a child, all of it is actually a result of this and deserving death. The wages of sin is death. Sin is a big deal. It has completely cut us off with no ability on our own power to come to him. We are a desperate people. And one of the things you know, this story is meant to show us is this truth that you need something that you can't do for yourself. You need to be saved. We should feel the weight of this. But the amazing truth about God is even in this epic discipline, which remember, Scripture tells us that God disciplines the ones he loves. Even in this epic discipline, there actually is profound love and profound hope. And this is the second thing we learn in the fall is this, that the gospel hope in the fall. The gospel hope in the fall. We begin to see this here in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, what's amazing is as he's you know, giving these curses out. He doesn't begin with Adam and Eve, does he? He actually begins with the serpent, with a curse to the serpent. And then he, he states here what theologians will call the proto-euangelion. 
which are these fun words to store in your head because you'll hear them if you ever read theological books. But what, it, what this simply means is it's the first sign of the gospel. Euangelion is the Greek word for gospel, good news, which is all throughout the New Testament. Proto is first. So you get the first good news, the first gospel we find actually here in verse 15. So right from the beginning of the story, we actually see God's plan of redemption on display. Satan's end is written at the beginning. He doesn't end. The writing's right there for him. And so before God utters any of the great curse to humanity... He's, you know, they're standing right there. He's letting them know, listen, I'm not going to stop pursuing you. I know you are helpless to save yourself. And I have to discipline you because I love you. And so he promises, listen, even out of the pain of childbearing, one will come to destroy the great enemy. One will come as a second Adam to make all things new. God is saying to them clearly, listen, the thing that you have done has undone creation. It has undone it in such a way that you cannot Reverse this on your own. It's like a car that has to be torn down to its frame and rebuilt. Creation has to be made new. Adam and Eve can't do the work that's needed. That's needed. It's beyond their ability. God is saying, listen, I'm the only one who can do this work, and I will do this work. And this is the great hope that we have in the first Adam. This is the great hope that we were singing about this future day when the blind will see, when the, when the lame will walk. This is the great hope of the, of the first advent, that the Messiah will come, an anointed one, that he will come and he will reestablish this kingdom. He will replant the great garden of the Lord and reverse all that went wrong in the curses and everything that came to humanity. Just as our fall is utter and complete, greater than that is God's resolve, that he will come and he will redeem the children of men, that he will crush the head of our enemy, that he will be utterly destroyed, even in the brokenness here. Even in the despair, there's this great hope of a future promise. And even in the shedding of blood here in verse 21, and the Lord God you know, made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, he had to break an animal and clothe them. Even in this, even in the shedding of blood, there is comfort. There is covering where it looks forward to the great covering that we have in Christ. And this is exactly what you find in Romans 5 when Paul is summarizing all that went wrong in Adam. He says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He's saying Adam used to be our head, and through Adam, it wasn't just him and his family that fell into sin, but everyone. Everyone, all humanity fell with him, now born in sin. But then he goes on to say this about Christ and his work as a second Adam. He says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads, leads to justification and life for all men. So what's Paul saying to us here? How is Paul interpreting this? He's saying this, that we thought the curse was strong for us, but Christ is actually stronger. Where Adam's one act led humanity into a state of sin and misery, Christ, the second Adam's one act, reverses the curse and now brings about new life for us. Where once we were all declared guilty, or dead in sin, now in Christ, you're actually declared righteous. Meaning the righteousness of Christ, his goodness, his perfection, his beauty is now yours in faith. This righteousness of Christ is now ours. You know, Paul echoes this even in Romans 8, saying that the creation was subjected to futility and hope. 
hope of this future redemption through the curse, because of the curse, through pain, because of pain in childbirth, and because of the toil of our work on earth, through death, through our seeming defeat, Christ, our great second Adam, undoes all that was wrong in the fall and more and actually gives us hope. And this is the promise of the gospel that's found even here among the curses. This is the good news, right? That God's kingdom is this upside down kingdom. His hope shines actually strongest in the darkness. This is what Genesis 3 is actually pointing us to, that this is, is what we have experienced in Christ, that he has declared us righteous. We were once dead in sin, but we're made alive in him. Made alive by the same spirit that caused all creation to spring to life. He's come to spring life in you. That even in your darkest hour, his steadfast love never fades. You know, sometimes in our lives, though, still all we feel is brokenness, right? Sometimes in your life, all you actually feel is the curse. Both the, the effects of of our actual sins and our actual struggles and the effects of living in a world that's still tainted by sin. We still experience pain, don't we? We still experience pain in, in childbearing, pain in, in our work. And sometimes because we still experience the effects of the fall, it can cause us to doubt Christ's sufficiency for our lives. It can cause us to wonder if Christ really did do this work that Romans 5 says he did. Why is there still brokenness in the world right now? And it's because of the simple truth that we still live in an Advent moment. This is a moment that we call the now and, and not yet, which is to say we live in the time between times where Christ has come. He has inaugurated his kingdom. It is growing and expanding in this world, but sin and its effects have not yet been fully eradicated from it. We are still waiting for him to come back again, and this is, this is our current Advent and because we live in the time between times, it's disorienting for us. It's confusing for us at times. But the work of Christ on the cross really did begin the ushering in of his great kingdom. The power of the enemy really is weakened. He is defeated. Redemption isn't only a future thing. Re resurrection isn't only a future reality, but in Christ, it is a present reality for us. And we experience it in this way that in, in every time you forgive someone, every time a marriage conflict is restored, God's kingdom begins to shine through. Every marriage conflict that's resolved, every birth that's happened, God's kingdom shines through. Every weed that's pulled from this earth, every line of code that's fixed, every act of creation that we have, God's kingdom begins to shine forth and grow and expand in this world and this is really the only hope we have in pulling a weed to only pull another weed, right? It's that even in those mundane tasks, those everyday tasks of, of changing diapers, of doing dishes, that we actually are joining the very work of Christ. Fighting against the lingering effects of sin, trusting and hoping in that future glorious day. So even in the great fall, in Christ our hope now is greater. Because in Christ, we have seen our great hope as we work and we watch for his second coming. Right, we still need Jesus to come back and to make all things new. And as we wait for that day, we still have a great hope knowing that because of Christ's work on the cross, our hope is not in vain. And now your life is actually reframed by this gospel hope, a hope of redemption, a hope of resurrection. Our hope is now nearer to you than it's ever been before. And so as we live this out 
as we live in a a now and not yet moment in history, may we never forget our great and profound need for Christ. And may we be a people who work, who eagerly work and watch for his coming. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are the one who hears us, that you are the one who is never far off, but you are near. I pray that we as a people would know your comforting power, that we would love you, that we would serve you, and that we would walk with you, knowing that every moment is made holy because you are with us, growing your kingdom through us. Pray this in the name of Christ, amen.